Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now my hairi mai. I'm John McDonald, kia ora, and welcome into the Hut Zone on Thursday the 16th of February. The Hut Zone is Wellington Access Radio's weekly look into the stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hutt Valley community. I do hope you have feared the recent cyclone without any harm. Here in the Hut Zone, we're here to give you something local and different to listen to. Tonight... We talked to local author and former journalist Ian Harris on his writing about being a secular Christian and how religion must evolve to meet changes in society. We hear more in our history series with Vin or Snowbench from Upper Hutt Library's archives. This week Vin talks about his father's leisure activities after a long motor mechanic life at Benj's Motors in Upper Hutt. We hear the final part in a World War I short story from former Eastbourne writer Catherine Mansfield called An Indiscreet Journey, read by LibriVox's Todd. And there is local music from Upper Hutt's The Formula, Tell Me No Lies, and Lower Hutt's Valley Kids, Only I Will. But let's start the show with our weekly local poetry reading from this week's short story author. A Joyful Song of Five by Catherine Mansfield Read by Rachel Harrison Come, let us all sing very high and all sing very loud and keep on singing in the street until there's quite a crowd and keep on singing in the house and up and down the stairs then underneath the furniture let's all play polar bears and crawl about with doormats on, and growl, and howl, and squeak. Then in the garden let us all fly, and play at hide-and-seek. And here we gather, nuts in May, I wrote a letter too. Here we go round the mulberry bush, the child who lost its shoe. And every game we ever played, and then, to stay alive, let's end with lots of birthday cake. Because today you're five. Here we go round the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush. Here we go round the mulberry bush on a cold and frosty morning. And that was Catherine Mansfield's A Joyful Song of Five, read by Rachel Harrison. Let's stick in the Catherine Mansfield zone and hear the final part of her short story, An Indiscreet Journey. To recap, an Englishwoman travelling to the French front line to see her French lover, the little corporal. She is pretending to be going to see her uncle and aunt. She makes it to the front, though she encounters an old woman on her train journey who asks pointed questions, knowing her real purpose. In France. An Indiscreet Journey by Catherine Mansfield, 1915. 
Recording by Todd What an extraordinary thing! We had been there to lunch and to dinner each day, but now in the dusk and alone I could not find it. I clop-clopped in my borrowed sabots through the greasy mud right to the end of the village, and there was not a sign of it. I could not even remember what it looked like, or if there was a name painted on the outside or any bottles or tables showing at the window. Already the village houses were sealed for the night behind big wooden shutters. Strange and mysterious they looked in the ragged drifting light and the thin rain, like a company of beggars perched on the hillside, their bosoms full of rich unlawful gold. There was nobody about but the soldiers. A group of wounded stood under a lamp post, petting a mangy shivering dog. Up the street came four big boys singing, Dodo, mon home, vis vite, dodo and swung off down the hill to their sheds behind the railway station. They seemed to take the last breath of the day with them. I began to walk slowly back. It must have been one of these houses. I remember it stood far back from the road, and there were no steps, not even a porch. One seemed to walk right through a window. And then, quite suddenly, the waiting boy came out of just such a place. He saw me and grinned cheerfully, and began to whistle through his teeth. Bonsoir, mon petit. Bonsoir, madame. And he followed me up the café to our special table, right at the far end by the window, and marked by a bunch of violets that I had left in a glass there yesterday. You are too? asked the waiting boy, flicking the table with a red and white cloth. His long swinging steps echoed over the bare floor. He disappeared into the kitchen, and came back to light the lamp that hung from the ceiling under a spreading shade, like a haymaker's hat. Warm light shone on the empty place that was really a barn, set out with dilapidated tables and chairs. Into the middle of the room a black stove jutted. At one side of it there was a table with a row of bottles on it, behind which Madame sat and took the money and made entries in a red book. Opposite her desk a door led into the kitchen. The walls were covered with a creamy paper, patterned all over with green and swollen trees. Hundreds and hundreds of trees reared their mushroom heads to the ceiling. I began to wonder who had chosen the paper, and why. Did Madame think it was beautiful, or that it was a gay and lovely thing to eat one's dinner at all seasons in the middle of a forest? On either side of the clock there hung a picture, one a young gentleman in black tights, wooing a pear-scented lady in yellow over the back of a garden seat. Premier raconte. Two, the black and yellow in amorous confusion. Triomphe d'amour. The clock ticked to a soothing lilt. C'est ça, c'est ça. In the kitchen, the waiting boy was washing up. I heard the ghostly chatter of the dishes. And years passed. Perhaps the war is long since over. There is no village outside at all. The streets are quiet under the grass. I have an idea this is the sort of thing one will do on the very last day of all. Sit in an empty cafe and listen to the clock ticking until... Madame came through the kitchen door, nodded to me, and took her seat behind the table her plump hands folded on the red book. Ping! went the door. A handful of soldiers came in, took off their coats, and began to play cards, chaffing and poking fun at the pretty waiting boy, who threw up his little round head, rubbed his thick fringe out of his eyes, and cheeked them back in his broken voice. Sometimes his voice boomed up from his throat, deep and harsh, and then in the middle of a sentence it broke and scattered in a funny squeaking. He seemed to enjoy it himself. You would not have been surprised if he had walked into the kitchen on his hands and brought back your dinner turning a Catherine wheel. Ping! went the door again. 
two more men came in. They sat at the table nearest Madame, and she leaned to them with a bird-like movement, her head on one side. Oh, they had a grievance. The lieutenant was a fool, nosing about, springing out at them, and they had only been sewing on buttons. Yes, that was all, sewing on buttons, and up comes this young spark. Now then, what are you up to? They mimicked the idiotic voice. Madame drew down her mouth, nodding sympathy. The waiting boy served them with glasses. He took a bottle of some orange colored stuff and put it on the table edge. A shout from the card players made him turn sharply and crash over went the bottle, spilling on the table, the floor, smash to tinkling atoms. An amazed silence. Through it, the drip drip of the wine from the table onto the floor. It looked very strange, dropping so slowly, as though the table were crying. Then there came a roar from the card players. You'll catch it, my boy. That's the style. Now you've done it. Sept, wheat, nerf. They started playing again. The waiting boy never said a word. He stood, his head bent, his hand spread out, and then he knelt and gathered up the glass, piece by piece, and soaked the wine up with a cloth. Only when Madame cried cheerfully, You wait until he finds out. Did he raise his head? He can't say anything if I pay for it, he muttered, his face jerking, and he marched off into the kitchen with a soaking cloth. He'll pleut de colère, said Madame delightedly, patting her hair with her plump hands. The café slowly filled. It grew very warm. Blue smoke mounted from the tables and hung about the haymaker's hat in misty wreaths. There was a suffocating smell of onion soup and boots and damp cloth. In the din, the door sounded again. It opened to let in a weed of a fellow who stood with his back against it, one hand shading his eyes. Hello, you've got the bandage off. How does it feel, mon vie? Let's have a look at them. But he made no reply. He shrugged and walked unsteadily to a table, sat down and leant against the wall. Slowly his hand fell. In his white face his eyes showed, pink as a rabbit's. They brimmed and spilled, brimmed and spilled. He dragged a white cloth out of his pocket and wiped them. It's the smoke, said someone. It's the smoke tickles them up for you. His comrades watched him a bit, watched his eyes fill again, again brim over. The water ran down his face, off his cheek, onto the table. He rubbed the place with his coat sleeve, and then, as though forgetful, went on rubbing, rubbing his hand across the table, staring in front of him. And then he started shaking his head to the movement of his hand. He gave a loud, strange groan, and dragged out the cloth again. Wait, neuf, dix, said the card players. Petite, some more bread, two coffees, un pecon. The waiting boy, quite recovered, but with scarlet cheeks ran to and fro. A tremendous quarrel flared up among the card players, raged for two minutes, and died in flickering laughter. Oof, groaned the man with the eyes, rocking and mopping. But nobody paid any attention to him except Madame. She made a little grimace at her two soldiers. Mais vous savez, c'est un peu de gâteau, ça, she said severely. Ah, oui, Madame answered the soldiers, watching her bent head and pretty hands as she arranged for the hundredth time frill of lace on her lifted bosom. Voilà, monsieur, called the waiting boy over his shoulder to me. For some reason I pretended not to hear, and I leaned over the table smelling the violets until the little corporal's hand closed over mine. Shall we have in peur de charcuterie to begin with? he asked tenderly. In England, said the blue-eyed soldier, 
You drink whiskey with your meals. N'est-ce pas, mademoiselle? A little glass of whiskey neat before eating? Whiskey and soda with your bifks, and after, more whiskey with hot water and lemon? Is it true, that? asked his great friend who sat opposite. A big, red-faced chap with a black beard and large, moist eyes and hair that looked as though it had been cut with a sewing machine. Well, not quite true, said I. See, see, cried the blue-eyed soldier. I ought to know. I'm in business. English travelers come to my place, and it's always the same thing. Bah! I can't stand whiskey, said the little corporal. It's too disgusting the morning after. Do you remember Monfils, the whiskey in that little bar in Montmartre? Souvenir tendre, sighed Blackbeard, putting two fingers in the breast of his coat and letting his head fall. He was very drunk. But I know something you've never tasted, said the blue-eyed soldier, pointing a finger at me. Something really good. He went with his tongue. Et passant. And the curious thing is that you'd hardly know it from whiskey, except that it's... He felt with his hand for the word. Finer, sweeter perhaps, not so sharp, and it leaves you feeling gay as a rabbit next morning. What is it called? Mirabelle. He rolled the word round his mouth under his tongue. Ah, well, that's the stuff. Oh, I could eat another mushroom, said Blackbeard. Oh, I would like another mushroom very much. I am sure I could eat another mushroom if Mademoiselle gave it to me out of her hand. You ought to try it said the blue-eyed soldier, leaning both hands on the table and speaking so seriously that I began to wonder how much more sober he was than Blackbeard. You ought to try it, and tonight. I would like you to tell me if you don't think it's like whiskey. Perhaps they've got it here, said the little corporal, and he called the waiting boy. Petite. No, monsieur, said the boy, who never stopped smiling. He served with dessert plates painted with blue parrots and horned beetles. What is the name for this in English? said Blackbeard, pointing. I told him, Parrot. Ah, oh, mon Dieu, Parrot. He put his arms round his plate. I love you, ma petite Parrot. You are sweet, you are blonde, you are English. You do not know the difference between whiskey and Mirabelle. The little corporal and I looked at each other, laughing. He squeezed up his eyes when he laughed, so that you saw nothing but the long, curly lashes. "'And I know a place where they do keep it,' said the blue-eyed soldier. "'Café d'Armise. "'We'll go there. I'll pay. I'll pay for the whole lot of us.' His gesture embraced thousands of pounds. But with a loud whirring noise, the clock on the wall struck half-past eight, and no soldier is allowed in a café after eight o'clock at night. "'It is fast.' said the blue-eyed soldier. The little corporal's watch said the same. So did the immense turnip that Blackbeard produced and carefully deposited on the head of one of the horned beetles. Oh, well, we'll take the risk, said the blue-eyed soldier, and he thrust his arms into his immense cardboard coat. It's worth it, he said. It's worth it. You just wait. Outside, stars shone between wispy clouds, and the moon fluttered like a candle flame over a pointed spire. The shadows of the dark, plume-like trees waved on the white houses. Not a soul to be seen. No sound to be heard but the hush, hush, of a faraway train, like a big beast shuffling in its sleep. "'You are cold,' whispered the little corporal. "'You are cold, ma fille.' "'No, really not,' 
But you are trembling. Yes, but I'm not cold. What are the women like in England? asked Blackbeard. After the war is over, I shall go to England. I shall find a little English girl and marry her and her parole. He gave a loud, choking laugh. Fool, said the blue-eyed soldier, shaking him, and he leant over to me. It is only after the second glass that you really taste it, he whispered. The second little glass, and then, ah, oh, then you know. Café des Amis gleamed in the moonlight. We glanced quickly up and down the road. We ran up the four wooden steps and opened the ringing glass door into a low room, lighted with a hanging lamp, where about ten people were dining. They were seated on two benches at a narrow table. "'Soldiers!' screamed a woman, leaping up from behind a white soup tureen, a scrag of a woman in a black shawl. "'Soldiers! At this hour! Look at that clock! Look at it!' And she pointed to the clock with a dripping ladle. "'It's fast,' said the blue-eyed soldier. "'It's fast, madam. And don't make so much noise, I beg of you. We will drink, and we will go.' "'Will you?' she cried, running around the table and planting herself in front of us. "'That's just what you won't do.' "'coming into an honest woman's house this hour of the night, "'making a scene, getting the police after you. "'Oh, no, ah, no, it's a disgrace, that's what it is.' "'Shh,' said the little corporal, holding up his hand. "'Dead silence. "'In the silence we heard steps passing. "'The police,' whispered Blackbeard, "'winking at a pretty girl with rings in her ears, "'who smiled back at him, saucy. "'Shh.' "'The faces lifted, listening.' How beautiful they are, I thought. They are like a family party having supper in the New Testament. The steps died away. Serve you very well right if you had been caught, scolded the angry woman. I'm sorry on your account that the police didn't come. You deserve it. You deserve it. A little glass of Mirabelle and we will go, persisted the blue-eyed soldier. Still scolding and muttering, she took four glasses from the cupboard and a big bottle. But you're not going to drink it in here. Don't you believe it? The little corporal ran into the kitchen. Not there, not there, idiot, she cried. Can't you see there's a window there, and a wall opposite where the police come every evening to... Shh! Another scare. You are mad, and you will end in prison, all four of you, said the woman. She flounced out of the room. We tiptoed after her, into a dark-smelling scullery, full of pans of greasy water, of salad leaves and meat bones. There now! she said, putting down the glasses. Drink and go. Why, at last. The blue-eyed soldier's happy voice trickled through the dark. What do you think? Isn't it just as I said? Hasn't it got a taste of excellent, excellent whiskey? I'm John McDonald, and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, and that was An Indiscreet Journey by Catherine Mansfield, read by LibriVox's Todd. Thank you, LibriVox, for letting us play that interview. You can find plenty more readings on their website, which is LibriVox.org.
Let's go up the valley, time travel from 1915 to 2001, and hear more in our history series with Vin or Snow Benge from Upper Hutt Library's archives. The interviewer is Nicola Freyan. So Dad was a guy who loved mechanicking and worked at it all his life. It was his life. Mm. Uh, he just put everything into it. Mm. He didn't have much in my hobbies except fishing, trout fishing, to which he would go on a trip every year with some of his friends, always Rex Chapman, Taylor, uh, another cousin, Harold Benge, Frank Whiteman, Later on, the Bill Ald, the policeman from Upper Hutt. How do you spell that name? Ald, A-U-L-D. But for the most times, it was about four of them, and they would go to Taupo or up the Motu. The Motu? Yeah, the Motu River, which is up uh, mm, Bay of Plenty. And they'd take caravans with Yeah, them. caravans and tents, yeah. And, uh, or Rex Chapman Taylor had a, a van, and a, car- and a small caravan. Harold Benj had a Volkswagen van which he could sleep in, and, and I think they used to get a, a, a batch at Turangi. And so they would enjoy their trout fishing, and Dad would come home with his uh, smoked trout, and we'd always rush out to the gate when Dad was coming home to see uh, how many fish he'd caught. <laughs> and he'd put them out on the table and, and dish them out to all his friends, and this is for so-and-so, and this is for Bill, and this is for Jim, and that's for Joe, and that's for Dolan, and that's for somebody else, and uh, have a whole heap of fish that she'd uh, dish out. And uh, we used to enjoy our smoked trout when Dad came home from his fishing trips. And he carried that on right into uh, late in life, fishing with, with mostly with Rex. So they never and took the children with them. But no, you know, no, never. Families. No, just never, never, never. They no, none of them ever took their families. Um, I never went for a, for a holiday with Dad. Mm. Different way of life those days, I guess. So, uh, and they enjoyed themselves. And they go for a week at a time, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And later on, your brother took over the garage. Your brother Ivan. Mm. But your dad continued to help, did he? Yeah, Dad yeah. was Dad was still there. Yeah, it's right. sort of a gradual, uh, <laughs> a gradual movement. They sort of ran it together, yes, and, until yeah. Dad got, you know, in his, I guess, in his sixties, he probably started to pull out a bit and come at nine o'clock in the morning, and uh, uh, instead of being here early and spend less time there. But uh, he used to spend a lot of, quite a bit of time there still. But I've been around the garage for many years. Mm. Uh, Were there any accidents that you particularly remember? You were telling me when we talked earlier about scarring on your father's arms. Can you give me a picture of how that happened? Yeah, that was that was a pretty horrible memory that I have of my dad. Um, one day I was at the garage, and Dad was working on a, a Ford car out on the out on the side of the street in Princess Street, and it backfired through the carburetor and sprayed petrol all over his arm his left arm, and then caught fire. And uh, I was standing by the door and Dad come flying into the garage 
with his arm all burning and run right down to the end of the garage, grabbed a fire extinguisher off the wall, gave it to a mechanic as he flew past him and said, here, put this out, quick. And so he sprayed the fire extinguisher on Dad's arm and then Dad grabbed the fire extinguisher off him, tore outside and put the car out. I was only a, oh, I suppose, perhaps 12, I suppose, at the time uh, and it was a pretty horrifying experience. Um, Mm. Uh, and it did had some terrible damage to his arm mm. which he lived with for the rest of his life and great ulcers and things because it burnt the skin right off his uh, his underarm almost down the bone and had mm. skin grafts later on in his life it burnt his fingers almost through to the bone and his hand always was just covered in scar tissue till he died and it took years to heal but he carried on working and Mm. It used to plague him for the rest of his life, that arm, but uh, mm. he kept on going with it. So that was a, another pretty horrible memory. Now, another memory of, of him was um, they were pushing a truck into the garage through the doors. Dad was pushing and, uh, and steering, standing beside the, with the door open, steering the vehicle through the door, and somehow or another he got caught between the truck tray, the corner of the truck tray sticking out and the concrete wall of the, by the door and it crushed his, broke four ribs. And so he was pretty crooked with that for quite some time as well. Did he have any insurance or accident Oh, those insurance? days I don't think he had those sort of things too much. No, um, he just had to pick up the pieces and get on with life. Yeah. And he was employing other mechanics Yeah, he had, at um, that stage? Uh, he always had an apprentice. Alf Gilbanks, G-I-L-B-A-N-K-S, was his first apprentice. He must have started with him when he first started in the garage in 37, I guess. So Alf spent his apprenticeship there, then he went away to the war. He then he had another couple of mechanics who worked with him all during, the, uh, during this time, during the war too. Um, he had another apprentice, which was uh, Donald Benge, Another relation. Another another relation. He was Harold Benger's son, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, over the years had quite a number of apprentices. Ivan, my brother, had uh, a few mm -hmm. apprentices too, uh, which are around, yeah. I just uh, remembering you were telling me the other day that that wasn't, that wasn't the only accident your father had to his arms. There was something when he was small. Yes, um, yeah. I rec remind me about that. And the, when he was a little boy, the uh, washing was always done with a boiled water, a boiler copper, just to boil the water uh, with a fire, and the boil, water was boiled, and you'd wash your clothes in that, and uh, then wash them by hand on a washboard. Dad was evidently standing beside the the boiler, the tub, when it was uh, boiling, and slipped and fell in and burnt both arms when he was a little fella, mm. and that was pretty uh, bad. He had badly, badly burnt arms. So. That was when your when his when when Green was doing the washing, yeah, when he was a little far on the farm. Was that an upper hut? Yes, yeah, yeah. Timaru. Mm. Yeah. So, so did they rush him off to the doctor, or what happened? I guess they did. The doctors were a bit scarce those days. Mm. <laughs> you know, one doctor in upper hut. Doctor, mm. it was Doctor Kemp. Now, when your dad retired from the garage, how did his life change after that? He carried on going for his fishing expeditions. Yeah, so. and he before before he left the garage, he was, uh, as I'll say, it sort of took up his life. 
he mm. just used to live his garage six days a week. And he wasn't particularly interested in gardening. Mum used to do all the vegetable garden at home. Dad would dig it over and Mum would do it, a bit like his, uh, his, uh, his parents had done. But when he retired, he became an avid vegetable gardener with compost heaps uh, all done properly and one one to the, one to the other. And, and he used to go a beautiful vegetable garden uh, where he lived in Golders Road. What number Golders Road was he living at? Um, I think it was number six, yeah, it was six Golders Road, yeah, and he had a great garden there, uh, and passion fruit and all sorts of things he grew, and beans and potatoes, and uh, he used to have them all ready, <laughs> well before our gardens were ready, <laughs> uh, but he enjoyed that. Mm. Um, this was your, your garden back in um, Henry Street? No, this would probably been my garden in Moriki Road by then, yes, and the, right. yeah, yeah. But he never had much in the way of um, hobbies or anything. Mm -hmm. He, like me, wasn't uh, interested in sport. He was a very good ballroom dancer. Oh. And he used to, that was one of his, that was his really, in his perhaps uh, later life, was ballroom dancing, and I remember People who now have often mentioned to me that they used to go dancing with Dad, I think at the Silverstream Hall. They had a weekly dance there, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, what sort of influence did, did he have on your life? Probably um, passing on to me his perhaps natural genes of um, mechanical things, <laughs> probably more than, uh, more than anything. When we were young, Dad was always seemed to be working at the garage, and so we didn't have holidays together. As I mentioned, we, we'd have our holidays with Grandma and Grandpa mm. Hazelwood, but Dad always seemed to be working when we were kids. Mm. Most nights he'd be back at the garage working as well. But I learned a lot from him in doing things with my hands, mm. engineering-wise, mechanicking and things like that, and working on cars. Mm. Um, but I guess he passed me, I passed on to me a fair bit that way, yeah. I'm John McDonald and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was Vin Benge talking to Nicola Freyan in 2001 on his memories of an early Upper Hut. Thank you to Upper Hut Libraries for letting us play that interview. Part 14 plays next week. Okay, time for some music. From Upper Hut's The Formula, here's Tell Me No Lies. <laughs>
that was The Formula and Tell Me No Lies. My next guest is an Eastbourne author who has been writing for a couple of decades, challenging religious institutions to evolve their understanding of faith and the Bible to keep their relevance in an ever-changing secular society. Ian Harris has produced several books, including Hand in Hand, which draws on his regular newspaper articles. I caught up with Ian recently and started by asking him how the source of the book, Writing as a Columnist, came about. I was working as editorial writer on The Dominion in 2001. There came a point where the editor of the day, Richard Long, was looking to give the paper a bit of a facelift for especially its Saturday edition. And he was looking for new columns, new approaches in various fields. And so I put my hand up and said, well, look, I could do um, a column on religion in our secular environment. I had in mind the fact that I had already thought about this and produced a book called Creating God, Recreating Christ. And I thought there could be an opportunity here for to give those ideas another trot around the paddock. So I submitted a couple of uh, sample articles, and he approved. So away we went on a weekly Saturday column in the Dominion, gradually diminished down as he got other contributors, until in 2009 there was such an anti-anything-religious feeling in the newspaper then, I was long gone from it, that uh, the editor found a way of canning it, which I was quite sorry about. However, I did continue to write for the Otago Daily Times until 2019. So a lot of articles never came to light in Wellington, but uh, they were available in the need and through a uh, distribution list of people who were interested in this approach. So what was your overall objective of those articles? Well, basically to say in the face of widespread scepticism that religion has no place in a modern secular society, say, hang on, look again. There is a place for it. It's not the old place because the world has changed so much. We have to take account of three or four hundred years of a knowledge explosion, especially in the scientific world, where the old stories and myths and whatnot that are in the Bible and which were once believed as fervently as people today believe in the Big Bang, they need to be rethought. We have vastly changed our approach to so many things through secularization, the gradual peeling away from control by the churches of just about everything. That doesn't mean the end of what Christianity or other religions for that matter have to offer in the new setting. I thought to myself, well, what we've got here is actually a new secular culture. And I had read a book by a leading um, Methodist Maori minister, Rakana, called A Maori Response to the Gospel. And it struck me as, well, if, if that is a valid approach, and it is, why not a secular approach to the gospel? And it was in that field, and I'm certainly not the only person who's worked in this area, there is so much to be explored and rethought for 
religion in general, Christianity in particular, uh, to have a, a role in the future as long as we're open to the transition that becomes necessary. Is there a particular article in the book that illustrates some of that? I do begin with a section in that book called Like It or Not, We're Secular. So I, I sort of explain the word secular in the way I understand it. A lot of people think of secular as anti-religion, but that's quite misleading. Secular is a word that really means of this world, of this time and space, without any recourse to supernatural this or that. My argument is that since we are now living in a secular culture, we need to adapt to rethink Christian faith that uh, sits within that. So to me, secular is not antagonistic in any way to faith. And I don't mean by faith, I don't mean belief. Belief is quite a different thing. The core of religion is faith. And it's been taken off the rails in many ways by a huge overemphasis on the idea of belief. Belief used to mean faith, loyalty, commitment, trust. That's what the word belief meant in the New Testament. But faith is a different quality altogether. It's a quality of life, of living, that quality of trust, commitment, loyalty, openness. The opposite of faith is not belief, it's certainty. People who think they know it all have no room to allow for an open-ended development and evolution of ideas, which to me is critical. But you asked about a particular column. One perhaps I could pick up on would be the one about science and religion, where I pick up on two leading Jewish thinkers and show how they are really in sympathy. One is Einstein, and Einstein has some very interesting things to say about religion, and he feels it has a very valid place in human experience and understanding. As he said himself, facts. The scientific method taught how facts are related to and conditioned by each other and can teach us nothing else. One can have the clearest and most complete knowledge of what is, yet not be able to deduce from that what should be our human aspirations. And that's a role that religion has typically played I think it helps to realize that we actually live in two worlds. We live in a, in a world of science, of facts, of cause and effect and all that sort of thing. But we also live in our own thought world. But the thought world is the world of the arts, of poetry, the imagination, creativity and religion. That is wrestling with the ideas of meaning and purpose and identity. And that's the area that uh, Jonathan Sachs explored in, in the book called, he called The Great Partnership. Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the Commonwealth, who died recently, in a nutshell he says, science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things together to see what they mean. In other words, the yin and yang of experience neither complete in itself, but each requiring the other to complete a human whole. So, 
I argue that the churches would be wise to accept the gift of science about creation, for example, and see the creation stories in the Bible as imaginative structures to give hope to a people who were in despair. It was during the time of the exile of the Jewish people in Babylon. Science is about explanation. Religion is about meaning. Science analyzes. Religion integrates. Science breaks things down to their component parts. Religion binds people together in relationships of trust. That word relationships is critical. Science tells us what is. Religion tells us what ought to be. Science describes. Religion beckons, summons, calls. Science sees objects. Religion speaks to us as subjects. Science practices detachment. Religion is the art of attachment. Self to self, soul to soul. Science sees the underlying order of the physical world. Religion hears the music beneath the noise. Science is the conquest of ignorance. Religion is the redemption of solitude. And once upon a time, those two approaches fitted hand in hand because there was just wasn't the scientific knowledge until the revolutions that began in the 1500s. One of the things that struck me when I was reading this part of the book of science and religion was maybe the response of some of the, the New Zealand church congregations at the early part of the COVID pandemic. And there was definitely tensions between the calls to come in that stage, I think it was going to lockdown and things like that, and accepting there was a virus. Is that a, a sort of a recent example of, of possible differences of opinion between religion and science? Well, I'm not quite sure which churches you have in mind. There would be some who think they know the mind of God, and, and their God is a very theistic God, an actual being sitting somewhere in supernature. But that is not the only idea of God that, that exists in the churches around New Zealand. There is also the realization that these are very much human interpretations of experience. And a lot of them grounded in a fundamentalist attitude to the Bible that every word must be true. And therefore, people in that zone are very certain that they are right and everybody else must be wrong. The rejection of the virus, or some of them even thinking that this is something visited by God to punish us for sin and all that kind of rubbish, but that's not at all my understanding and most people that I know, <laughs> their understanding. The primary uh, response, I imagine, for most of the churches would have been prayer, but then again, prayer has to be rethought. I, I think there's a, a huge distinction to be made between a God which objectifies God, reifies God, and turns God into a, a thing, an idol, a being. That's not the interpretation that really is going to have any impact in our secular culture today. God has to be conceived of quite differently and the approach to God in prayer becomes much more a reflection in presence, in the presence of whatever it is we have created in our brains. Reflection 
where is godness to be found in this situation? And godness is to be found in the response we make, in care and compassion, in relationships, not expecting God as a miracle deliverer of a cure. has to be considered in relation to the earthquake in Turkey, the floods that have devastated Auckland or parts of Auckland. You can I, I think there is God in them, but not the God as the cause of them. These are natural forces. The question of Godness being in them is in the response, and the response where the response is of compassion, caring, concern, rescue. There you see a kind of Godness in action. I sometimes think of it, if God is conceived or experienced, rather, as a force field or Godness in a situation, there is God. Not a God, but God. Picking up on the A God and picking up probably on the last part of the book, which talks about churches needing to adapt or die. And I was thinking at that point when I was reading that about the speculation on the the oath that King Charles is going to make, given the the, the statement that he would normally take the oath to to be defender of the faith, and there has been speculation in the past about being the protector of all faiths. Do you think that the church is ready to make that sort of change to evolve with the times? Whether the Church of England is in, in England is capable of that, I just can't predict. But I think it's really a, a, a sign that Charles is reading the times perhaps more accurately than some of those uh, in the church who are much more blinkered and feel that there can only be one way of believing anything that has any validity whatever. He made the comment about defender of faith years ago. It's a much more inclusive term, but one of the things we have to do, I'm sure, is learn to live more openly and in a more friendly way with people of other faiths Uh, than we have in the past. The king, the governor of the Church of England, formerly head of the Church of England, uh, he has very little theological input into what the general synod of the church will be uh, discussing and debating. Whether they take any lead from him, I don't know. It's very difficult. There are people here there who are dug in to their entrenched positions. We've just seen that in the last week or so with the uh, decision not to marry same-sex couples. Uh, In a similar way, if you dig deeper into the faiths, not the same as ours, there comes to be a point at which you realize that the core teaching of all of them, the core impulse of all of them, is compassion. And once you accept that, then you stop what I call otherizing everybody else to boost yourself and begin to accept that they have a faith, a validity in their faith, which gives their life meaning and identity and purpose. And therefore say, you know, if your heart is as my heart, give me your hand. If Charles is thinking in those kinds of categories, then good on him. Do you still go to church? Uh, infrequently now, because I find a lot of what happens in church is so uh, enmeshed in 
past understandings and attitudes that uh, it's not easy to feel comfortable. You don't want to go to church and feel you can't go anywhere near the place for the next three months. But there are other churches, of course, that are, are much more open and, and exciting, and I go occasionally to, to one of those. Lucky enough to be part of a group which in 1990 set about exploring uh, and expressing new ways of understanding and expressing Christian faith in the new secular millennium. And the exploration there has been very open and stimulating um, community building. The name of it is the Ephesus Group. Ephesus traditionally is the place where John, of the Gospel of John, adapted a Hebrew understanding of Christ and his uh, impact and expressed it in terms of a Greek cultural world. And my parallel is that we have to pick up on a pre-secular understanding of the world and adapt it into a form that is fitting for a secular era. What are your connections there, Ian? Well, I've been living in Bay's Bay since 1995. My wife and I shifted here at a point where she was working at the CIT in Upper Hutt and I was working in town of the Dominion and in a, an unguarded moment I said, oh, so it would make sense to live halfway <laughs> equidistant from both spots. And fortunately, we came upon Bay's, a place in Bay's Bay which has been great. What? What sort of churches locally have you been to? The local one is St. Ronan's Presbyterian Church. And latterly that has become involved in combined services with St. Albans Anglican Church once a quarter. And that's a move which I think is wonderful. I was also impressed that uh, from time to time the Presbyterian Church, which also incorporates a number of Methodists, invited the Monsignor of the local Catholic parish to come along and take part in the services. And I think that reaching across barriers, stopping otherizing each other, is a huge step forward. Mm. At the same time, it doesn't make it easier to move beyond what is traditionally held in each church. Writing plans for the future, do you have any more writing that you want to do after Hand in Hand? I did wonder whether there was a third book to be explored in, um, again, arising from the columns, which in my mind I had called Where the the Rubber Hits the Road, which was basically applying some of these ideas to situations around us that everybody is experiencing. Earthquakes and storms, sickness and health, elections, attitudes to Maori, all that kind of thing. Olympic Games losses in a rugby test. I think that probably the time has gone for that because they were much more fixed to a particular event and those events quickly fade out of the sense of the present. So I probably won't do that. In the meantime, I am continuing to contribute a column to the monthly Methodist newspaper, Touchstone, some of them based on the columns and others new because of new circumstances, new things I'm discovering. So that's about it. Now, the book looks like it's out of stock on the Cuba Press website, so they're encouraging people to check bookstores for copies. Do do libraries hold a copy here in the Hutt Valley of Hand in Hand, do you know? 
I don't know that they have hand in hand. They certainly have a previous book, New World, New God, to which hand in hand is actually a prequel. The New World, New God tackles some of the central images and features of Christianity, God, Jesus, the Bible, Easter, Christmas, Pentecost, that sort of thing. It's much more focused in that sense. I know they have a copy of that somewhere in the library, but whether they have it on the open shelves, no, I don't know that. I'm actually intrigued to hear that Hand in Hand is out of stock. I didn't know that. Thank you. (laughs) Finally, your hopes for the future of faith, transform or perish? Oh, I certainly don't hope it perishes. (laughs) Far from it. (laughs) No, no, no. I hope that people will see the logic in tackling seriously the fact of where we are at the moment as a society, we are secular. We need to find a faith that can be expressed in and through secular understanding as well as drawing on the great, what I call the core tradition of the past. And believe me, it still has much, so much to offer. And I would be very sorry to see the trend continue where the church gradually seems to be shriveling away which has to make basically a leap of faith and that's not a digging in on belief it's a leap of faith I don't see too much evidence that institutionally that is happening although it certainly is happening at at some levels in parishes and the pews so long may it continue I'm John McDonald, and you're in the hut zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM. And that was Days Bays Ian Harris talking on his secular religion writing, including his 2021 book, Hand in Hand, published by the Cuba Press. But sadly, that means it's the end of this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today, and a big thank you to you for listening to the show and supporting Wellington Access Radio. Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the Hutzone pages of accessradio.org.nz or check out my Facebook page for links to some of the individual interviews and stories and my Facebook name is John McDonald NZ. If you have a suggestion of a Hut story, piece of musical poetry, then do message us either on Facebook or email the team and our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz. Do join me again next Thursday in the Hut Zone. Until then, keep safe and let's go out with some more local music from Valley Kids. Here's Only I Will. Hi, Ra.
That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.